1: I have no idea how we're going to cover this in 15 minutes. There are some chapters that are just so useful and so edifying that you should come back to them again and again and again. So... Think of this as just a a 10,000 foot survey of a chapter that you should know intimately at ground level. Please come back to this again and again and again. Some of these passages are absolutely foundational to to Christianity in terms of what we believe and in terms of how we worship. But let me just give you the 10,000 foot look on, on this chapter. I'll begin at verse one. It says, He went away from there and came to his own hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Josie, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown." and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. So this story obviously takes place in Jesus' hometown. And all of this section takes place in the northern area of Israel in Galilee. And Jesus has been going around from village to village, and here he he comes to his hometown and I think what is significant about this story is that it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that proximity to Jesus, the nearness to Jesus, accessibility does not in any way guarantee faith. And In fact, I think the passage is making the argument that sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, these these people knew jesus. and and it, it wasn't that they they were aware of any flaw in his character. It's just that he was altogether human, too, he was too human and and too normal. And it's a reminder that a reminder of a couple things. But first of all, it's a reminder that different people struggle with different aspects of the Christian claim. St. Augustine, for example, like these folks, really struggled with the humanity of Jesus. The the idea that Jesus was God was not a problem for him, but the idea that in some way God was contained in a human body, that was a real issue for him. Now, for these folks, it's not so much that Jesus had a body. It was that he had brothers and sisters. That's just too normal, right? That's just too human. And and they had a fixed idea of what it would look like when God came to them and it, and it didn't look like this. Now, other people are going to struggle on the other end. Other people are going to struggle with the divinity of Christ and those kinds of claims. But the the point is that we have to accept Jesus as all of who he is. And different people struggle in different ways. And, And again, I think there is something to this familiarity breeds contempt thing that I think Mark is saying. I think Mark is saying, don't think that just because you've had lots of exposure to Jesus that faith will be any easier for you. I think those of us who are raised in Christian homes can testify to that. That actually some, sometimes, again, being exposed, lots of exposure, this being normal and not new can actually be a bit of an impediment. There, I think maybe there's a reminder in here that every time people come to faith, it's a miracle, it, it, there's a spiritual work God is is opening eyes. Let me say one more thing about this passage because there's something in here that people trip on when it says that he could do no mighty work there except that he healed a few people. Folks struggle with that and and can panic almost. This is one of those times when we're thankful for four gospels, uh, four different people recording what they thought was most useful and would be most helpful. Matthew records a little line here in his version of the story that's just tremendously helpful. In Matthew 13, 58, he says that the reason Jesus could do no mighty work was because of their unbelief. And so I, th- I think that's probably helpful for the new Bible reader just to, to realize that if you ever do get stuck, go check another gospel and see, see what else is there and put it all together. And, and here, when we do that, we see it wasn't that Jesus lacked power. It wasn't that he was unable in and of himself. It was that it was the normal way of Jesus to meet faith and desperation with blessing. These people didn't have faith. So it wouldn't have been right. It wouldn't have set a good pattern. It wouldn't have been helpful for their own growth for him to bless their unbelief. All right, let's jump back into the text. Verse seven, it says, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Now, there's no doubt that this was a real story. That In fact, some commentators think that, that Jesus was in the habit that, that this is maybe the first time he sent them out, but that there were several little mission trips during this season where they went out and came back, and that may be the case. Certainly, this really happened, but there's also no doubt that Mark has put it in the Gospels uh, because it represents in some way a pattern of Christian ministry. One commentator, Dennis Ninaham, puts it this way, No doubt Mark understood the incident as the foundation event on which all subsequent Christian missionary activity was based. So there's a sense in which we're supposed to read this looking for a blueprint for Christian ministry. And in fact, the passage has been and continues to be used that way. And so when we look at it, and we're looking for that, we see a couple things. Obviously, we could we could point out a, a dozen or more things, but for the interest of time, let me just point out a few that jump out to me. I think it's pretty clear that Jesus expected them to work in team. He sends them out in pairs. That's just a helpful little reminder that no one of us has all the gifts or all the passions or, or all the, the the strengths necessary for the sum total of Christian ministry. Work in team. You know, reject the lone wolf mentality. Understand that God has made you strategically deficient so as to draw you into relationships of commonality and complementarity. I think we see that here in the text. I, I notice as well that he sends them out early, developmentally speaking. I mean, it's not even clear at this point whether the disciples have a full, entirely Christian grasp on the identity and significance of Jesus. They're still making significant mistakes. They're still missing important things. But he sends them out. I mean, I hear that as a bit of a rebuke. I, I sometimes wait too long before I transition in my discipleship of people, you know, towards the, that sort of receiving and sending part. You know, I, I often worry that if you send people out, you know, half-cocked or half-educated, they're going to make a mess. They're going to they're fire off in all kinds of strange directions. And, and, and certainly there's some truth in that. But I'm just convicted by the fact that he sends them out early in terms of their development. I think there's a message there that people cannot mature into fully formed disciples of Christ if if sending and serving is is not part of the mix. I also look and I see that he sends them out poor, right? Don't take this. Don't take an extra tunic. Don't. You know, he he doesn't send them out well resourced. And I think the message there is that he expects gospel ministry to be supported by those who find the gospel message compelling. And and I think that's. Again, a bit of a rebuke to us in North America where you know, we expect that maybe two generations of work can go on in a field supported entirely by the North American church. No, this says pretty rapidly expect to be supported. That, that in essence, the extent to which people are willing to support gospel ministry becomes an expression of their interest in gospel ministry. I think that's important to note. Also, I notice here he sends them out prepared to be rejected, that whole shake the dust off your feet thing. That's an expression, that's an idiom, a cultural idiom. It doesn't make a lot of a, sen- a lot of sense to folks today. But in those days, when Jews were traveling on pilgrimage, when they crossed from Gentile territory into Jewish territory, they would sort of symbolically shake the dust off their sandals as a way of marking the line between the outside world and the, and the world of the covenant community. So for Jesus to say this to his disciples who are ministering within the Jewish community is absolutely radical. What he's saying is that, as people respond to the message of the gospel, they put themselves in or out of the covenant community. That even Jewish folks, if Jewish folks reject the message of the gospel, they put themselves outside the boundary of the covenant community. That's amazing. And, and, he, and he just tells the disciples, don't expect everybody to respond positively. Prepare for some whole towns to reject the gospel. And then, of course, we see he sends them out with power. Now, if you read a bunch of commentaries on this, you'll get a bunch of different takes on that. Some think that there was some special gift that was given to the apostles, that they had a unique authority over the demonic realm. Others actually put the emphasis on the apostolic gospel, that basically this is saying the apostolic gospel has the power to dispel darkness and the demonic. You can take that however you like. It may be both and. Certainly, I would say that where the gospel is embraced, the darkness is dispelled. Where the Holy Spirit is present through the gospel, through the embrace of the gospel, um, the, the demonic is dispelled. So I, I certainly have no problem seeing it that way. I, I lo- however you take that, I love how Mark summarizes the trip. He says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. Basically, he says, they preached the gospel and they cared about people. They ministered to the whole person, starting with the soul. I think that is pretty near perfect as a blueprint for Christian ministry. Now, what's interesting is just because they did it right, and just because they did it so well, and just because they follow the blueprint, doesn't mean that they met with a good reception. And that's why we've got the next story that we have, Mark 6, 14 to 29. Let me read that to you. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he would married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, "What should I ask?" Or and he vowed to her, sorry, whatever you ask of me, I'll give to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, "For what should I ask?" And she said, "The head of John the Baptist." And she came in immediately with haste to the king, saying, "I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter." And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, we can't say a lot of what should be said about this text. It's a fascinating bit of insight into human psychology. The Herod family is a very—it's like a dog's breakfast trying to sort it out. There are four different characters in the New Testament who are referred to as Herod because it was a complicated family tree filled with incest and in-marrying and weirdness. But what's interesting is the way Mark uses the story. This really isn't a story about Herod or John the Baptist. It's a classic example of what scholars call sandwich structure. You'll notice that Mark tells this story inside the story of the sending of the Twelve. Right, the very next verse says, and the 12 came back and told Jesus what had happened. So this story is told inside of another story. And the point is that this story interprets the main story. What, the reason this story is in the Bible is because Mark is saying that this is what happens to kingdom messengers. This, this is how they treated John the first kingdom messenger. This is how they will treat Jesus, the ultimate kingdom messenger. And this is how they will treat you if you follow down this path. This is a prophecy and a warning. Now, again, we know that because in Matthew's version of the sending out of the 12, same story, Matthew doesn't bother to insert this story, to have this story. Jesus probably gave the story and a a punchline. And Matthew just gives the punchline. He says that when Jesus sent them out, he said to the twelve, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's the punchline, right? I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep in the midst of wolves expect to get eaten. And Jesus says, And so should you. Right? So should you. That's 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 not an invitation to be terrified. That's an that's an invitation to honesty. Have honest expectations. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's carry on with the story. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. They went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. By the way, just notice that when Jesus had compassion for people, he taught them. He understood what was really going on. Verse 35, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups and on the green grass. So they sat down in groups and by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, we're already pretty much out of time. We're already past time. I told you we'd never get through this chapter in 15 minutes, and we won't. But you should know that this is one of the most significant miracles in the Bible. In fact, you could probably make the argument that this is the most significant ar- uh, miracle in the New Testament anyway. This is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. It, it is massively significant. Its impact on how we understand the person and work of Jesus is, is beyond finding out. Its impact on Christian liturgy is beyond finding out. I've been to ancient Christian churches where the, a picture of this story is turned into a mosaic underneath their communion table. This influenced how the early church celebrated communion. Communion. So it's a massive story. It's worth meditating on, but I'm just going to point out to you a couple of the most salient points. This story is intended to communicate. Miracles are like proverbs, or sorry, like parables. I should say they they're not. They are yes, they're commonplace events involving things like bread and seed and other things. But they to those who are paying attention, they draw you into much deeper truths. Let me just point to those, point you towards those much deeper truths. This story is Jesus saying that he is the prophet like Moses. In John's version of the story, there's a little dialogue that takes place with some people in the crowd who are connecting the dots. And, and there's a question about this whole manna thing. And, and they, they immediately make the connection to the manna story in the Old Testament. They immediately understand this is the prophet like Moses in the same way that Moses called down manna from heaven. So Jesus has miraculously provided bread in the desert. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 19, to watch for a prophet like him. And so people are connecting the dots. People are also seeing that Jesus is the shepherd like David. In Ezekiel 34, there's this marvelous prophecy where God says, You know, I'm quite fed up with the leaders of Israel, the prophets, the shepherds, the priests, the kings, the whole lot of them. I'm done with them, God says. And, and and at a time in the future, I will come and I will shepherd my sheep myself. And he goes on and on. I myself will do it. I myself will gather them. I myself will feed them. And then at the end, there's this weird phrase, and David will be shepherd among them. Now, David's been dead for hundreds of years, and we just got through a long paragraph where God kept saying, I myself, I myself will do it. And then he says, and David will do it. And so people were looking for a A son of David who would shepherd the people like God on behalf of God. And this story is is Jesus saying, I am that shepherd. One of the things it says is that he'll feed them. He'll lead them into peace and prosperity and feed them. Jesus is saying, I'm that shepherd. And then, of course, you can't miss the fact that Jesus is saying here, I'm the messianic king. In the Old Testament, the eternal kingdom of God was always pictured as a banquet where people would eat in peace and prosperity, where death would be vanquished and food would be plenty. And that, of course, is a great picture of heaven if you're poor. So people are connecting the dots. They're seeing all this. They're getting very excited. In fact, John says in his version, John 6.15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him and make him king by force. Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. People were getting bits and pieces of this. They were getting very excited, but they weren't ready yet to begin the kingdom. There was something they didn't see. And that takes us to the next story in our, our passage, Mark 6, 45 to 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat, right? So the crowd's going crazy. Fervor, revolutionary fervor is going through the crowd. Jesus hustles them out of there. Immediately, he makes his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves for their hearts were hardened. See how Mark connects this story to the feeding of the 5,000. He says the reason they weren't prepared to understand Jesus walking on the water is because they had not fully understood the miracle of the loaves. They got that Jesus was the prophet like Moses. They understood he was the shepherd like David. They understood he was the messianic king. They didn't understand that he was God in the flesh. And so in this story, this is Jesus filling in the blanks. Now Mark wants to make sure we get that. So he adds this weird phrase, he meant to pass them by. And that sounds to us like he was just going to kind of wave at them while he walked on to ahead to Bethsaida, but that's not it at all. Pass by is an Old Testament phrase that means to show glory. Right? You remember when Moses wanted to see the glory of God? God says, well, Moses, you can't handle that. But what I'll do is I'll shove you into a rock. So you've just got this tiny little slit of vision. And then I'll kind of pass by and show you the backside of my glory. And he uses that phrase, pass by twice. While my glory passes by, I'll stick you in the rock. I'll cover you until I have passed by. So to pass by means to reveal glory. It is to show divinity. This is a theophany a display of the divinity of Christ. So that's what's going on. But here's the surprise. Not only does Jesus reveal his divinity, not only is this a theophany, he gets in the boat. Now that never happened in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I am not just God up there, sovereign, majestic, on my throne. I am the God of the universe, yes, but I'm also the God who gets in your boat. I am the God who joins you in your troubles. That is the full marvel and the full miracle of this passage. And that changes everything. And John wants to make sure that we see that. In John's version, he says this, John 6, 21, as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, he says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. John is making it real clear. This is a truth that changes everything. When you understand who Jesus is, that he is God above us, but he is also God with us, that changes everything. Mark 6 ends with these words. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. They moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region, began to gather and bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. You got problems? You need to get with Jesus, right? Because one of the things Mark says again and again and again in different ways is that apart from Jesus, people are in trouble. But when you touch Jesus, when you bring him into your boat, when you let him take the wheel, when he comes to you and you come to him, immediately things are different. He speaks to your storm. He silences your adversary, and he brings you safely home. That's a picture of the gospel. That's an open invitation
0: Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.